wise men follow him, they rose again. Wise men follow him, thank God for the renegades and the lives they Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, The Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, WBCQ 94.7 in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook, 88.1 FM in Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer and Bangor, Maine. You'll be hearing this uh, Saturday. May 9th, 2015, 9 a.m. Well, we got uh, mostly cloudy today with a high near 59, cooled off a little bit from this hot weather we had. South wind 8 to 11 miles an hour. Tonight, chance of showers between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. and a chance of rain or drizzle after 4 a.m. Areas of fog between 11 and 2 a.m. Areas of fog after 3 a.m. Likewise, mostly cloudy, kind of dreary and damp tonight. That's a good thing. Well, we've had some some fires, and we've had, it's been it's been real windy and dry, and nothing is greening up yet. I'm starting to see a few blades of grass on the lawns, but the woods are bone dry. And uh, <laughs> They put a sign that says, don't even fart in the forest. <laughs> it uh, It is it's dry out there. It's just like walking on cornflakes. It's like November when it's frosty and leaves are wet and they freeze and they crunch. Well, now well, they're dry in them and they crunch. And uh, Mother's Day, chance of rain or drizzle before 7 a.m., chance of showers after 7 a.m., Mostly cloudy with a high near 74. So we're going to be warm and and cloudy and kind of high humidity. Southwest wind around 7 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation 40%. Not too bad a day, Mother's Day. Got to get together with Mom and take her out to dinner or bring dinner or something so she doesn't have to work too hard that day. Sunday night, chance of showers, cloudy with a low around 52, light and variable wind becoming north around 5 after midnight, chance of precipitation, 40%. Monday, chance of showers, cloudy with a high near 63, north wind 5 to 7 becoming calm in the afternoon, chance of precipitation, 50%. So, we're going to get a little bit of dampness, which may take the the fire danger down from the red flag extreme down into the fire danger is high. It's it's risky. They down in Burlington they they burned a a patch about fifty acres, took two houses, a barn, two vehicles, and a grassy field and got into the woods and had a heck of a time. It was the wind was blowing twenty miles an hour you can't outrun the flames get downwind of it and they're coming at you you know you got you don't have a lot of choices like that crew out in Colorado they could get underneath their fire shelters and, and hope they can survive it because they can't outrun it and I see the hot shots on Route 6 there we're training with the Forest Service and when you get something like that you need a lot of labor you need young people to grab a Grab a, uh, an Indian pump and run with it. Now the Indian pumps we I had when I was a young fellow were made out of brass. They're collectors' items today. They clock, people pay hundreds of dollars to, to set them in their office or something. An old Indian pump with a good decal on it was made out of brass is worth a lot of money today. They went from brass to galvanized, and then they went from galvanized to uh, neoprene bag on a frame. 
So they still carry, you know, 50 pounds of water. They're heavy. And, uh, you know, they got the, everybody's seen what these are. They, they squirt the flames. In our little fire department, uh, most of the volunteer firemen have my hair color. Older men with gray hair. And I used to be able to run uphill with an Indian pump. And I can still go uphill with an Indian pump, but I can't run uphill with an Indian pump. I just run out of wind. That's what happens when you get my hair color. So so uh, fire chief got to thinking, you know, you got a birthday cake with a bunch of candles on top. How do you extinguish the flame? You blow it out. You exceed the capacity of the flame to burn by blowing it away from the fire source. He thought, you know, what would happen if we got a leaf blower and walked along a grass fire line and blew the flames back toward the area that's already been burned? And we tried that. Gee, it worked pretty good. You know, you can stamp out a couple of sticks with your feet as you're going along there, and it's a lot quicker and easier than running back and forth with an Indian pump and squirting it. So we tried that. And we have it on the fire truck. But being Mainers, it's our nature to take it one step further. So the chief says, you know, what if we connected this thing up with an Indian pump? So you got a, a tube of water running run out of the Indian pump and into the blower so that you're squirting a mist out of it. And that way you could fire this thing up, and if you get into a little bundle of sticks or something that's kind of stubborn, you just press the button and blow, blow a blast of mist onto the fire. Well, that worked pretty good. See, you know, so you hook it up to an Indian pump with existing tube and just plug it into this fitting on the on the tube on the leaf blower and and blow a mist of water onto the flames. More efficient than than just blowing the air. So, then, of course, being Mainers, you take it one step further. What if we put some foaming agent in the tank of water and put that down through there when you fire the the leaf blower up? Well, let's try that. You know, just We've got foaming agent right on the truck, so you take about a half a cup of foaming agent, dump it in there in the water tank, and spray that on the fire. So you fire up the leaf blower and you press the button, and whew, 300 mile an hour shaving cream coming out of the end of that baby. And it does not reignite, puts it out, snuffs it out, stays out. Holy mackerel, 300 miles an hour shaving cream coming out of this thing. <laughs> but being Mainers, they take it one step further. You must be thinking, how can you take that one step further? 300 mile an hour shaving cream to foam and put, up, put out a fire. There's only one other thing to do. The last thing. Coloring. Food coloring. Dump some food coloring in there with the foaming agent. Now you've got 300 mile an hour shaving cream coming out of there in the color of your choice. Hey, you can't make this stuff up. Only in Maine. With a fire department and have 300 mile an hour shaving cream coming out of the end of it in the color of your choice. Yep. Fire danger is up. Don't ignite anything. Just don't burn outdoors. Good time to quit smoking if you smoke. Smoke is not good for you. But you know what is good for you? Well, it'll make you live a long time. Just broke breaking news this week. Numerous scientific studies have proven that coffee extends your lifespan. The more coffee you drink, the longer you're going to live. This is not an ad that came up with from out of Maxwell House. This is a scientific study that says that people that drink a lot of coffee live longer. Now, that could be the reason. But it could be that even before they discovered coffee, Scandinavians lived longer than other people. You've got to be tough to live up in northern Scandinavia, northern Maine too. 
And people do tend to live longer. You know, you you look at the obituaries. Every day in the paper, I tend to scan down through the obituaries and see people that I know showing up on the list. But an awful lot of people in Maine pass away in their 90s. And, and every week, there's a couple of people over 100 passed away in Maine. Eventually, the you know, clock stops ticking. But think what they've contributed to to society over those years. You know, they got the age, they got the wisdom, they got the experience. Next year, we're going to have a presidential election. And we've got a couple dozen candidates so far, and there's going to be even more that jump in and raise money. You've got candidates that haven't even announced their candidates just thinking about it, and they've got over $100 million to play with. Jeb Bush, one of them. And... Uh, He's he's a big open borders guy. You know, Obama was an open borders guy. He got elected. So, you know, stranger things have happened. Open borders are not good for our country. They're finding, well, I shouldn't say they're finding. They have found years ago, you know, five, six years ago, when they really opened the border, we started finding documents and literature on our side of the border printed in Arabic and Farsi. Now, Farsi is the language of Persia or Iran. They did their own thing. They're they're between the Arabs and the Afghans. And the Persians have survived for thousands of years. And King Xerxes traveled out of Persia, west across what is now Turkey, and got to the got to Greece. And King Leonidas of Greece was standing with his army trying to stop Xerxes. The most powerful army in the world was the Persian army. And they made the same mistake that Many other armies have made over the years. Napoleon, you know, tried to go too far into Russia, and the supply lines were too too long, and their long supply lines are easy to cut. And Hitler tried, you know, he didn't pay attention to history, and he didn't pay attention to Napoleon and what happened to him. So they, so they, uh, they tried to march all the way to Moscow. And they overextended their supply lines, and had to, some of them actually made it back to Germany, but an awful lot of them didn't. So now, in Xerxes, as I said, was marching toward Greece, and when Xerxes ran into King Leonidas, he sent a message to the king, and he said, "If you will lay down your weapons." I will let you and 100 people go. King Leonidas sent a message back. said, Molon Lave. Come and get him. And Xerxes did. Xerxes went after him. And King Leonidas and a whole lot of Greeks were killed. But they prevented Xerxes from marching right across Europe all the way to all the way to the Atlantic because they, they stopped them. They ran into a force that, that would not retreat, that would not surrender. That's the key right there. Don't retreat, don't surrender. Don't give up. Carry on. Have resolve. Have courage. Like our forefathers did at Lexington and Concord. Those brave farmers and blacksmiths and preachers and storekeepers and doctors and lawyers, everybody from society banded together with a common cause and stopped the most powerful army in the world. We tell that story. Project Appleseed tells that story. And we also teach marksmanship, which is a life skill. 
And one thing that I mentioned that is not mentioned as part of the program, but marksmanship is a life skill. Everybody should be able to handle a firearm safely, and everybody should be able to use a firearm efficiently. And our object is, is for somebody to be able to take up a military surplus firearm, the rifle. Military surplus rifle, out of the armory, an ordinary rack-grade rifle. I'm not talking about a super expensive, finely tuned match rifle, just an ordinary rifle. And be able to shoot a one-inch group at... 25 yards. That's a 4-inch group at 100 yards. 8-inch group at 200 yards. A 12-inch group at 300 yards. A 16-inch group at 400 yards. And a 20-inch group at 500 yards. That's the same thing. The same level of accuracy. Now you have, you have to understand the bullet drops, and we teach that, and how to compensate for it with whichever rifle or open sights that you have. But if you take a rack-grade M1, fires a .30-06, we teach you how to reliably hit a 20-inch square at 500 yards. When you attend an apple seed, you will walk away with that knowledge. You may walk away with the skill. Knowledge and skill are two different things. Knowledge is knowing this; it can be done and how to do it. Being able to do it reliably is a skill. There are lots of things that interfere with that skill. It takes practice. It takes understanding. And it takes the ability to assemble all of the little components that involve marksmanship. We teach it all in two days. The Marine Corps teaches it in one week. The Marine Corps issues you a rifle and you dry fire it for a week before you ever fire a live round. And you can do that. You know, it works. It's highly efficient. Our Marines are the most accurate military force in the world. They can score more hits and they they have a motto, every every Marine a rifleman. I don't care if you're a cook or a postal clerk or a jet engine mechanic, you're a rifleman. You have to qualify as riflemen. You won't get out of boot camp without it. Some continue on and become really good snipers. I, I know personally a man who was in charge of training and supplying all of the Marine Corps snipers in Iraq, all of them. And he went into the field also as a sniper. And he sent me a flag that flew over Fallujah in Iraq. That's a very important ISIS town now. We took it. And we left. Like Hamburger Hill in Vietnam. We took it. And we left. Like Quezon in Vietnam. We took it. And we left. And our leaders and tacticians have us take a lot of places and leave. Well, our our goal is not to colonize places like Vietnam and Iraq. Our goal is to is to give them the opportunity to, de- to determine their own fates. And you know, they don't want to be democracies. But nowhere in our Constitution does the word democracy appear. It's all about liberty and freedom to make your own choices. So I've been in four different countries. I've been involved in civil strife at various levels. And Dominican Republic had a, had a revolution. And I was there right in the middle of it. I had the only helicopter in in the revolution for a while. Only one helicopter. We evacuated a lot of people out of the embassy, one or two at a time, depending on their weight and how hot it was. 104 degrees 
2,500 dead civilians in the streets of Santo Domingo, 104 degrees. Well, I tell you, that was a shocker the first time I flew in there. Just totally unprepared. I came down through four, 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 four or five hundred feet altitude, and holy mackerel, I just about lost my breakfast right there. I just <laughs> didn't know that. You know, nobody told me, and just why would they? You know, they just didn't know that a helicopter was coming anyway. So, so I took out the military attaché, Marine Corps bird colonel. He was mad. He was not a happy camper. He was given a direct order by Sinkland Fleet, you will depart by helicopter. They did not want that guy to get captured because he had worked at Chafe, Supreme Allied Headquarters European Forces in Brussels. And he knew all the plans about how the Allies were going to defend Europe if the Russians came charging down to fold the gap. Well, he... Uh, they just didn't want the communists to capture him. And there were, Castro had sent in 25,000 AK-47s, issued them to all the young people in the Dominican Republic and said, revolt! And they did. There was a colossal riot. But they did not have good tactical abilities. They did not have good communications. And uh, it was just a huge riot. It lasted about eight weeks, and it was over. They ran out of ammunition, and I don't know what happened after. I mean, they got their freedom back. I don't know how they dealt with the communists or what happened in that regard. I wasn't there. I was there for the first two weeks, maybe three weeks. I forget exactly. And the ship left. The ship I was on left. And the USS Boxer came with a whole bunch of Army helicopters. And... uh, we were happy to see them. They can carry more than two passengers. <laughs> it was a zoo for a couple of weeks, I'll tell you. There's a picture of me taken with Vice Admiral Masterson. Well, Vice Admiral was a big shot in the Navy. Standing there by a bollard. A bollard is a, is a great big round winch that they use to winch the, the lines in when they're coming up to a pier. And if the wind is blowing the ship away from the pier, you know, a big ship and the gusty wind is it generates quite a lot of force. We have to winch it, winch itself sideways toward the pier to compensate for the wind. And that's what that bollard is. And it's about the size of a cable spool, and uh, it's like a round table. And we had some maps of stuff spread out on it there by the flight deck and on the stern of this great big cruiser. Yeah, Newport News was the name of the cruiser, and it had eight-inch guns. It was like a like a two-thirds scale battleship, World War II thinking. And uh, the admiral says, "I I brought the the Marine Corps bird colonel out, and the admiral says, good job. Says, oh, really glad to get him out of there. Can you do it again?' <laughs> and at that moment. A Navy photographer snapped that picture. <laughs> it's just me and the Admiral, the Vice Admiral. And, uh, and he caught the expression on my, on my face. And he says, can you do it again? I said, oh, you know. <laughs> now, yeah, I can do it again. And took off and went in there and did it again. He made 100 landings. Say we. This is a one-pilot helicopter, no co-pilot. And after we made a hundred landings on the ship, the cooks baked the cake, brought it out there, set it on that same bollard right there, by back by the flight deck, and got a picture of the cake. It says 100 landings. That cruiser had never had a hundred landings in a couple of days before, and it was quite a deal. We'd land. They had a teak deck, a wooden teak flight deck. And every time we'd land, they'd run out there with a with a steel drip pan in case my helicopter leaked little oil. They didn't want to get oil on their teak deck. I mean, it was it was like the 1800s and the 20th century coming together. <laughs> teak decks and helicopters. And uh, it's, just, it's just a strange time. But I've been in a lot of strange times. 
how to write a book. People say how to write a book. I'm going to write a piece for the newspaper, uh, and the title is going to be Rusty Rails. In northern Maine, we've got a lot of railroad tracks that are rusty. That means they're not being used. From September of 2014 to now, there have been no trains through Lincoln, Maine. Now, that was a busy railroad. They used to haul tank cars up up through Lincoln when they were making coated paper, or printing paper, I should say, and uh, going to Millinocket. And they'd had railroad cars going up through with, with oil, you know, with uh, Bunker C oil for, for the uh, boilers. And they had uh, clay and various paper chemicals, lubricants, logs, timber, you know, finished products of whole rail cars of of, uh, of lumber going back down after they brought other stuff up. And it was it was a busy railroad. And since September of last year, no train has been up that track, and the rails are rusty. Well, that means that commerce is not taking place. In our country, uh, before I get off there, here it is coming up on 9.30. I haven't even given the gas price yet. Gas price is $2.43 a gallon in Portland, and it was two forty nine last week. The gas price is $2.93 in Portage, and that's up from two seventy three last week. So they took a 20, $0.20 cent jump in Aroostook County, and uh, a, a slight decline in Portland. The diesel price is two seventy five in Fairfield and three sixty nine in Scarborough. Now Fairfield is right on the interstate near Waterville. You can swing off there and swing up. I, I fill up there a lot. It's, they always have a low price there at that station in Fairfield. It's just off the exit, easy off, easy on when you're going down. And I swing up in there and fill up on the way home sometimes. You know, it makes sense to buy gas where it's cheapest. You get these little programs for the telephone, and you can punch it in there. And it knows where you are because your telephone's got a GPS in it, and most of them do, the smartphones do. And just if you're going up through Augusta, you think you might need fuel, punch it in there. If it's not too far off the interstate, you can go to the one that's cheapest. Makes sense. Mentioned rusty rails, and I—that's going to be the title of an article that I'm going to write during the next week when I get a minute. But I said last week that we've got 93 million Americans between the ages of 18 and 16 not working, not working. They're not paying much in taxes. All levels of governments are short on funds. The local governments are short on funds because we had a hard winter and various other things, and people aren't paying their taxes. Some towns, I know of a town that let things go for 13 years. They got people that were 13 years behind their taxes, and the town did not take the property. And now they have to. So you're going to see more and more foreclosures with the town. You know, there's a law in Maine. If you've got an elderly person in town and they cannot pay their taxes on the property, the town can put a lien on it, and that lien will accumulate. And when the property changes hands, whether it's auctioned off in the end or the person dies and the estate doesn't want it, I've seen a number of properties lately where where, uh, the old man dies, and the family does not want the property, and the property ends up being foreclosed upon or auctioned off or whatever's going to happen. That's increasing in our country. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that you know banks are, are holding properties on their books. There are people, the property is being occupied, but nobody's making payments. And these people are are heating the house, and they're paying their taxes to the town. 
But they know, and the bank knows, that they don't own that house. And eventually, you know, they're going to lose it, and they're going to have to leave. But the bank is not forcing them out on day one when they foreclose. A lot of people sitting in a house today in that situation, their neighbors don't even know it. Neighbors don't know that these people no longer own the house. One day they'll back it up and leave. Hopefully it won't be in December when the house can freeze up. But, you know, most most Mainers are responsible enough to drain the pipes when they leave. You don't you don't find many where the pipes are all broken. It happens. Sometimes people just don't know any better. They just you know they clean out their stuff and they leave the house. And they don't tell the bank, hey, we're leaving. And next time somebody comes to check, hopefully they've at least shut off the water. <laughs> I know of a business office over in the Dover area. It came in Monday morning, and the building was full of water right up to the window sills and frozen solid. I mean, they had three or four feet of ice in the building that they had to thaw out. It was a calamity and a great embarrassment. I know who did it. <laughs> I'm not going to say. So... The state of our economy and the 93 million Americans that are not working, that means they're not working in regular jobs where, that's, where income is reported, they're doing something to survive. And thankfully, most of them are doing legal stuff. That, well, by legal, I mean they're not, they're not killing people and they're not robbing people. You know, they're working under the table, doing odd jobs. Those, and there's no... No reported income there and no taxes paid. And that's how a lot of people in America are surviving, just working under the table. And the old model of 40-hour-a-week jobs with benefits and a retirement down the road is pretty much gone. They're not creating a lot of jobs. Last week, in our nation, they created 130,000 new jobs. That's half the rate that we need to create jobs. We've got a high school class graduating in a month, about a month from now. They'll have graduations all over the country. And over a year's time, we need to create 250,000 jobs a week to absorb the, the new people coming into the market. Now, to get that 250,000, they're subtracting the retirees. So we really need to create, uh, I mean, when a retiree retires and somebody else gets the job, that's not a new job. It's a new job for the new employee, but we're not increasing the number of jobs. If, if people were hired at the same pay, rate people retire, the total labor market would be stable, and there would not be any new jobs, and there would not be any lost jobs. The total number of jobs would stay the same. And But we now have 93 million Americans not working. And these people are not looking forward to retirement down the end of the road. And there's a song that, that I like. It was recorded by Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen is a good entertainer. He puts on a good show, and he leans significantly left of center politically. But every now and then he he comes out with, with a song that I like. And he had a whole album called the Youngstown Album. And Bruce Springsteen took a year off. He and his wife traveled around the country, picked up material, played in bars, uh, just hanging out. He'd show up in some bar with a guitar and he'd start singing, you know, and they didn't pay him. He was it was just it was just a wonderful thing for the people that were there. My wife and I spent our first Christmas together on St. Thomas. And I was I uh went into, we went into a bar called the Castaways down there and they had a great big fish tank behind the bar with piranhas in it. And uh Peter Stuckey and 
and Mary were in there. I don't know where Paul was, but it was it was part of the group of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I sang with them down there in an impromptu situation. I actually did that. And I knew most of the songs they sang, and, and their songs were were left of center, if you will. You didn't hear them singing any patriot songs that honor the military or business or hard-working Americans. And, uh, but they, you know, they were popular, and they, and they made good music. And Bruce Springsteen recording uh, is the anthem of America. Now, if you want to turn down your radios, step out of the room for a moment, I'm going to, I'm going to sing the first verse of Bruce. I don't sing on the radio, but I just like this song. And Bruce sang, uh, Here in Northeast Ohio, back in 1803, James and Daniel Heaton found the ore that was lying in Yellow Creek. They built the blast furnace there along the shore. There they made the cannonballs to help the Union win the war. There in Youngstown, there in Youngstown, my sweet daddy, I'm sinking down. Here in old Youngstown, they go on and you know he talks about the building the first tanks. It takes a lot of steel to build a tank in World War One, World War Two, and then uh, Youngstown fell apart like Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's a beautiful city. There with the Monongahela and the Ohio River come together. My father worked for a company called Pittsburgh Steel for a while before he retired. My father worked in the same plant from the time he was 20 years old till he was 62 years old, 42 years in a wire mill. And he he uh, retired at 62. He said, you know what, I'm not going to spend another three years in here. And things weren't looking too good, and, and he retired. And he fished, went fishing and hunting for 20 years. From 62 to 82, had a good time, enjoyed his life, and, and uh, he and Mom were married over 50 years, and they they're passed away now. They're gone. But we fished a lot of lakes in Maine, and hiked a lot of trails, and climbed a bunch of mountains, and had a good time. And it's nice when you can do that. It's nice when you have. A, an economy where you can do that. We don't have that anymore. The uh, government's getting nervous. They haven't having a big, great big, three or four month training session in some red states down along, you know, Arkansas, Texas. Uh, New Mexico, Arizona, seven states. I don't know the whole list. They're going to hold drills, counterinsurgency warfare type drills. They go charge it in and try to take over communities and, and declare martial law. And the governor of Texas is asked for the Texas Guard. It's like a militia. It's a state guard. It's not the National Guard. It's a state guard. All states are are able to have a state guard. And about 35 or 40 states have state guards. They're like the old Texas Rangers, and they're resource people in their communities. They try to keep keep the peace and prevent uh, disasters of any kind. And they're they're good, solid citizens. And they're, no pay, they're not paid except when they're activated. And when they're activated, they don't get much money. They get some food. They get some supplies. They have good, good, very good communications equipment. And the governor of Texas has asked the Texas State Guard to monitor and report all activities of this event that the Obama administration is planning. And I don't have right at the tips of my fingers, but I'll have it next week, the recording of Barack Obama saying that we need a civilian military, a civilian security force just as big, just as powerful as the military. And he's building it. 
They have bought enough pistol ammunition to kill one-third of the people on the planet. Think about that. They say, well, we need it for training purposes. They don't need it for training purposes. These people are qualified. At least they're reasonably proficient in the handling of firearms. And the civilians ought to be also. Project Appleseed will train you to know how to take a rack-grade rifle and not knowing where it's going to shoot, just flop down there in the prone position, get really stable, get into what is called your natural point of aim, take a deep breath, take a normal breath, exhale partially, hold, bam, fire one round. Package it up, put it in the case, go home. Because there may come a time in our country when a whole lot of high-power rifle fire at the local gravel pit or wherever will attract unwanted attention. So you fire one round. You write it down as to where that round went. Take your target home with you. And you look at, at where it impacted and... How much of a site adjustment do you need to correct so that that will be right on? You go out a week later, 10 days later, and nestle into your, front, into your position and find your natural point of aim, which we explained thoroughly. Bam, fire another round. We're at 100 yards. Where did that hit the paper? How much of a correction do you need to make so that it would be dead center? You have to come right forward, down six. Where where did it go? What what correction do you need need to make? Fire one round. Package it up and go home. Later on, two days later, a week later, you go out, nestle in there at 100 yards, Get your natural point of aim, pause, squeeze, bam. It's going to be in there. It's going to be in there within an inch or two of the center, the exact spot where you're aiming. Now you're on. Don't worry about group size. Finding the size of the group could be a waste of ammunition. The last time I saw 22 ammunition on the shelf for sale at Walmart was August of last year, maybe September. You know, can't walk in there and buy it. I walked into a Walmart down there, in, in the big Walmart in Bangor. Went up to the sporting goods section there, and nice older fellow there. Walked over, and there's no 22 ammunition. And young fellow came in, wow, look at that. He grabbed three boxes of twenty-two ammunition, and he was really happy, 150 rounds. And I said, wait a minute, did you, check, did you see what that is? He said, yeah, 22. I said, read the box. He looked at it, it was 22 birdshot, number 11 birdshot. Oh, jeez, thank you, he says. <laughs> he was really happy. He was going to go out the door and bring that home. He had 22 ammunition. Birdshot, effective range, eight feet. <laughs> It's for shooting rats and snakes and stuff. But it just does not going to hack it in a rifle it, for any significant target. But people want 22 because it's good for economical practice. And it's it's effective. The British tested 22 ammunition out to 300 yards. And they found that a 22, a good solid 22 hit at 300 yards will result in that enemy being incapacitated. You will no longer be an effective troop. If he gets hit in a 20-inch square, center of body mass, at 300 yards, he's going to be ineffective. He's out of the fight. That's the goal. British did that. They did a real extensive study because in 1941, 
there were very few firearms in England that were held by the common man, the common citizen. Didn't have an Enfield in his closet. Three hundred three Enfield is just as good as a three hundred eight or a thirty out six. It's just different. British want to be different. It's it's a it's their culture. I regard it as a character flaw. But they want to be different for the sake of being different. That's I guess it's okay. But it'd be better off if they standardized. They uh, they use the FNAL, Fabrique Nationale, and uh, it's a 308. It's the NATO round. 7.62 NATO is the same as a 308. Now you get arguments. No, no, it isn't the same thing. Yeah, well, they're interchangeable. They fire in the same firearms. And the only difference is, well, there's two differences that are significant. One is the primers on military 308 ammunition, 7.62 NATO, are crimped because they don't want the primer to, to shake loose out of the primer pocket when being fired in a machine gun. And the other difference is that the case in the area of the primer pocket is a little bit uh, heavier so that it'll extract reliably in a machine gun. They don't want to be pulling the rim off the case and get a jam in the machine gun. Complicated to deal with it and time-consuming and and hazardous. So that's the difference. But on the exterior, they're the same. Just the inside of the case a little bit thicker, right back in the in the base of the case. And the FN, FNAL uh, is what they used in the Falklands War. Now the British announced this week that if they had another Falklands War, they would not be able to uh, to win the conflict. And I know a guy who was in the Falklands War, sold him a property, and uh, the man owns a castle in the south of France. He owns an estate out in the English countryside, lives on on uh, St. James Place in London, and he wanted to have a property on a lake in Maine where he could fire his FNAL on his own property. Yeah, you can do that here. So when you hear some high-power rifle fire echoing across the lake, <laughs> that's him, perfectly legal. And uh, he worked for Princess Diana clearing mines in in the Muslim countries, in in uh, Iraq and in Kuwait, various other places clearing mines, and he got blown up, got very badly injured. They flew him back to England, and he he recovered, but he's, uh, he lost a leg, and, and uh, he's still functional, and he still likes to fire that FNAL. And he can take it apart, put it back together again. He was down in the Falkland Islands. I know a bunch of people like this around the, around the country, around the world. And these special operations people tend to stick together. And uh, I visit him when he's here. He told me about being up on a mountainside in the Falkland Islands because there were two A-4 attack aircraft that had taken off from British carrier and engaged there were dog fighting and putting in attacks against the Argentinians on the Falklands. And of course the Argentinians were out there with their fighters trying to shoot down the British fighters and they, so there were two two things going on. It was just like North Vietnam for us. A little smaller but very similar. It carrier based forces against land based forces. Uh, engaged in aerial dog fights and, and air to ground attacks. And they dropped a, uh, a uh, French missile and, and sunk a 
British destroyer, an Exocet missile. It took me a second to remember the name of the missile. Exocet is a, is a missile made by France, and it flies across the water 20 feet above the water level at a huge rate of speed, you know, well over, way over the speed of sound. When that thing is incoming, there's not much you can do about it. And they hit that destroyer dead center and just about blew it in half, and down she went with the loss of a whole bunch of people. Sunk it and went down quick. Well, two of those fighters did not come back uh, to the carrier, and they didn't, you know, they figured they were shot down and they, no distress signal. Pilots weren't calling back on their on their radios and saying, "Hey, I'm down. Come pick me up." So they found a crash site where just below a mountain ridge, the A4s would have terrain following radar, and they'll they pull up out of the valley, go over the top, drip drop down the next valley. Well, they missed. They didn't go over the top. They hit the top of the cliff. Bam. And he was sent down to find out. One, were the ejection seats there? The ejection seats were there. You know, the pilot didn't get out of the aircraft. And so he went down and he rappelled down this cliff, and there was the wreckage, you know, on the cliff, all over the cliff, and below the cliff. He fell down, took some tissue samples, and put them in a Ziploc bag, and saw the tail hook. For the aircraft, it's definitely an A-4 because of the tail hook. And then he went along the cliff, and there was a second tail hook. Hmm. Well, look at that. That's where the other aircraft went because no aircraft has two tail hooks. What happened is the planes were flying in formation, and they both flew into the top of that cliff. The wingman wasn't watching the cliff. He was watching his lead. The lead misjudged, and he pulled up. But he didn't clear the top of the cliff, and they both hit the cliff. Blam! Big ball of fire, big explosion, and nobody suffered in that one. And my friend uh, took photographs, and said they're both there. And he took tissue samples, you know, put them in Ziploc bags. That's all there is sometimes. And uh, that was that. We talk back and forth. He ends his conversation with cheers. And I end it with cheers. We talk back and forth to England. I talk with people in various countries. We're talking about the world economy, how things are going. We talk about the Baltic Dry Index. And and they, uh, I've mentioned this before, but that's cargo hauling ships. Moving the goods that keep the world going, raw materials of all kinds, oats and wheat and barley, soybeans, gypsum, make to make plaster of Paris or sheetrock, lumber, iron ore. It's all all the things that make the world go. And there's an awful lot of ships that don't have cargoes. A lot of them. 240 years ago right now, the the word was arriving in South Carolina about Lexington and Concord and what had happened and what our people did. Thirteen colonies, one nation, one people, one day. That's embroidered on on our shirts. What those colonials did back then is an amazing thing. They defeated the most powerful army in the world. Sent them back to Boston empty-handed, and they were never able to leave Boston by land again. And on this 240th anniversary, I post on my Facebook page. You can look up Northern Maine Landman on Facebook, and there I am. And I've been posting what has happened, you know, each day since April 19th. And right now, on May 8th, the word arrived down in, in South Carolina as to what had happened back on April 19th. And the people were aroused and gathered together to read and reread the story on the handbill that was printed and carried down there. It's interesting that 
The word arrived in North Carolina by ship three days before it arrived by rider on horseback. But what they were doing is they would, each town would keep one sheet. And sometimes if it was just a little neighborhood, they would read the sheet aloud and people would take notes and they would continue on. But if it was a town that was big enough, they'd give them one sheet of paper to be shared. And some of those towns have those sheets framed in their town town halls today or churches. A lot of times the meeting house was was where they held the town meetings. It was also the church, and it was called the town meeting house. And that's where their worship services were held. And I mentioned about about uh, William Emerson, the congregational preacher from Concord, who went down through Connecticut from town to town telling what had happened. And, and the divine providence that allowed those farmers and blacksmiths and preachers and doctors, storekeepers, to prevail against the most powerful army in the entire world. We asked the question. They raised 14,000 men in 18 hours marching toward Boston. No TV, no radios, no cell phones, no Internet. Did we raise 14,000 today if we had U.N. troops coming up across the Kittery Bridge into Maine to try to seize our firearms? Did we raise 1,400? Did we raise 140? I had one apple cedar said, I can't get 14 people to come to a barbecue where I feed them. We need to start bailing. The ship of state is sinking. We use the term, we need more people to bail. Of course, my outlook is to stop the leak. The leak is in Washington, D.C. And you know, they tell us what they're planning, and I read some of that off last week as, as to what they plan and what they'd like to do. The job, we have the lowest job partition rate in our nation since 1952. Now, we've got a lot more people since then, but as far as the rate goes, the percentage of the population working is the lowest it's been since 1952. Now, one of the reasons is that we pay people not to work. Now, we need to have unemployment insurance. If there's a sudden disaster like the pulp mill in Lincoln blew up, I mean, one day everybody went to work and the alarm went off and the people ran out of the building and the pulp mill blew up the recovery boiler. They're done making pulp. It will not be rebuilt. So you got to have a way to compensate for that. And we pay for insurance, for unemployment insurance. And... Employees pay that, and employers pay that. It comes out of your out of the value of your work. You're self-employed. You don't have that. If you can't find work to do, you're just not employed. And you're one of the 93 million. When I went in the real estate business, my father said, "You know," he said, "Back during the depression, there were people driving around in Cadillacs and Packards and Duesenbergs and, and building beautiful homes on a lake." There will always be people with money. It's true. There always will be. But there's a whole lot of people that are up against it in our nation right now. And we look at Baltimore and all the other cities, and the clock is ticking because we're not going to be able to to support 93 million people out of our production and taxes paid by those who are working. It's not possible. And Joe Sixpack sitting home watching Dancing with the Stars, an American hero, 
is not aware of the situation. I don't describe myself as a Paul Revere out here spreading the word, and there's a whole lot of other people out there doing the same thing that I'm doing. You look at Blog Talk Radio, and you look at Talk Show, and you look at a whole bunch of other radio networks out there, and a lot of people are becoming aware. What I'm trying to do is, is just raise the awareness level in northern Maine. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscious of Maine, broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, WBCQ, 94.7 in Monticello, and all the way down to Danforth, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. And you're hearing this on Saturday, April 9th, 2015. Ladies and gentlemen, the woods are dry and the water is cold. That's just the way it is in May in the state of Maine. Don't set the woods on fire and stay out of that water. Be safe. God bless. Wise men follow him. Wise men follow him. Thank God for the 